This podcast deals with violence and contains graphic descriptions that may be triggering for sensitive listeners. Do you know what's happening? It has not God's aim to be like this. It's the weekend in Snake Park. On the open field next to the Royal Supermarket, missionaries are out in full force. Some have cars and sound systems, while others have colorful robes. A young Jehovah's Witness only has her pamphlets that are in danger of being blown away by the wind. My name is Mbali Shabangu. I stay here at Snake Park Block 7. Yeah, I'm one of Jehovah's Witness. So because of the scene that happens long time ago, do you know the story of Adam and Eve and the Satan, the snake? The result is what you see. Suffering, poverty, disability, and everything. You are listening to One Night in Snake Park. My name is Elliot Moleva. Over the weekend, the faithful of Snake Park come out in droves. Like Nombuiselo's purest mother, many say they find solace in the community and the faith. They find the strength to accept the hardships of life they cannot change. It is midwinter in 2020 when I'm recording this. The website New Frame reports how migrants in Togoza, south of Johannesburg, are being attacked. Their shops are being looted, and they have been forced out of their homes. A woman describes how her papers, her child's birth certificate, was burnt in front of her. We are sanitizing, the residents tell the reporter, referencing the current ongoing pandemic. Besides new frame, the story is largely unreported in the media. Xenophobic attacks and the suffering that follows seems to be one of those things that one must accept, a thing that simply is part of life. But investigating what happened when Spio Mahori died has convinced us that this is not true. Attacks happen and play out in complicated ways, but that does not mean that there's nothing we can do about it. We will try to summarize what we have learned about that night Spewer died and what happened later. And we are going to start with a phone call to Mogadishu. We made the call in late 2019 after having spent a long time trying to find Yusuf. In spite of the friendliness of our contacts in the Somali community, we had made little headway. People were happy to talk, as long as we were speaking in general terms. But when we asked about specific people or events, we got nowhere. Clearly and understandably, they did not trust us. We were also told that local dynamics in Mayfair itself meant that there were trust issues within the community. The truth is, the little insight we got 
only made us less certain about everything we were told. But through another connection, we got a hold of a researcher in Mogadishu, a man who had lived in South Africa. But for his protection, we can't name him here and you won't hear his voice. But he was clearly connected. Quickly he got on the phone with the man we know as Abdul, the shop owner at the Royal Supermarket in Snake Park. He found him within 30 minutes using only the shop's former name, Raso. We asked him to dig around to try to find Yusuf. Long story short, he found him. Unlike what we heard, he had not left the country. He had gone to Limpopo, where he was working in a shop far away from the bustling Soweto. He never went to Mayfair, where he used to be part of the Somali community. Those who knew him said he was a changed man. Yosef did not want to be recorded, and our researcher could only speak to him briefly. About the case, he said he felt like he was the fall guy. He said he was miserable and still felt very sorry about what happened, but he was still thinking about the boy. The whole situation had ruined his life, and he wanted to be left alone. Our source in Mogadishu tried to convince the Snake Park shopkeepers or anyone in the Somali community to talk with us. But when it came to actually recording the interviews, no one was interested. Now there was one more person we needed to find, Lebo Khang, the other guy who was shot by Yusuf. He's still the only person we know for sure was also at the scene. We wanted to know why the case of attempted murder on his life was dropped, and also why he was never in court. And perhaps most importantly, who had lied about his statement? Because in the docket, the statement from Lebohang was dated 21st of January. Yet, three weeks after that, the prosecutor told the court no statement had been taken from him because he was still in hospital, presumably too hurt to speak. Because there weren't there more than one child outside the door? Since the complainant the complainant for the attempted murder is still alive. He's still alive, Bishop, yes. What does he say happened? Bishop, we haven't obtained his statement. Bishop. You haven't? Yeah, I haven't. You're going to obtain his statement. Bishop. Sure. He was still in hospital. So it was clear that either the police or the prosecutor was lying about his statement in court. Lebogang hasn't been easy to find. But today, Norman, Spewer's neighbor and the man who held him when he died, has promised to help. It takes some driving and asking around, but eventually, we are in luck. Cool. So, Lebo, you know I am here, ne? Yeah, the one gets into the car and immediately it seems clear that he's the right man to talk to. When uh, the thing that happened at Block 4, I can even show you where it happened, you see. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Do you have... Oh, right, there's this guy. Let's see. Can you tell me what it looks like? Hey, it's, 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 it's round and uh, it, it passes through... It, the, the bullet passed through the, my, my, my right arm. Just get that straight. Does the bullet go through the it's neck of Sipiwe and then hit you in the arm? And, and 
chased me here in the arm here. You see, it crossed. It didn't get in. It, it bent my screen, you see. What Lobachang is saying does not match what is in the docket. That he was on his way home from work and was far away when he was hit by the third bullet fired from the shop. But what he says confirms what the autopsy report showed. That the bullet went straight through Spiewer's neck. And then, Lebohang says, the bullet hit him. And he has a very simple explanation of why what he says doesn't match the statement in the docket. And um, so did you go to the hospital after that? No, I, I, I was even scared. As I tell you, I wasn't even scared to go to the hospital. What made this uh, to, to very even... I, <laughs> I poured Colgate to here to, because I was scared. I saw that day I was going to get arrested, didn't they? <laughs> and did you ever speak to the police? No, hey, no, no, no. Hey, I was very scared. Really? You never spoke to the police? Uh, no, for I don't know what else. What will I say? If Lebakang didn't speak to the police, it would explain why the police initially did not have his statement in court. But it would also mean that the investigating officer made it up and placed a false statement in the police docket. Lebakang's scar from the bullet is relatively small. It does not look like it would come from a wound that would require at least three weeks in hospital, like the prosecutor said. But as you might remember, Detective Ramutan, the detective that supposedly took the statement, did not want to discuss this. And his boss sent us to the station's communications officer. From him, we got a written statement declaring that Lebohang was indeed interviewed. But the investigating officer had trouble finding Lebohang afterwards. And because of that, he could never appear in court. So while it is certain that the prosecution did not tell the truth in court, we cannot say if it was because the police lied to the prosecution first. But both cannot be telling the truth. We also don't have evidence that Lebohang is telling the truth. But unlike the police, he is willing to talk. And when... Yeah, put the mic here. Okay. Yeah. Why? I, these guys, you see, they are busy looking at me, like... <laughs> oh, I see, I see, yeah. I see. Yeah, you can get an accident here. As I told you, news travels faster than WhatsApp. Sure. And as they drive to a better place to do the interview, they talk about Spiwe. So would you then say that Spiwe now, he was like a young kid, and he didn't... What, did he just join up as kids do like that, because... You know, something is happening, he wants to be part of it. Yes. Uh. He, he wanted to, he, he was trying to get it to uh, 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 those days, high school fever. Yeah. Like, you see, uh, he wanted to, and uh, he, he, he liked being like, you, you see, when you grow up here, you have role models that you see, hey, that guy, I like to be like him because he, he can stand, you see, he was mm-hmm. that guy, right? He was this day, that boy, energetic boy, because he had a bike and uh, he, he could do all the styles that could be done now. Hey, that e- boy everyone was very talks energetic, about Sipiwa's bicycle tricks. Hey, yeah. hey, he's, he's, hey, you see that, 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 that man left. They arrive at the open space in front of the Royal Supermarket, a few meters from where Sipiwa died and say that uh, my friend showed me that I was bleeding when I was over here. 
Lebohan recounts the day it happened. It was about 2 p.m. when when this thing started. It actually started before it escalated to the business robberies and whatever see, that, that that came after. You see, where it first started was that at the at the shop. That's the Waka Waka shop. And and what were you doing? How did you get involved? Oh, ah, uh, me. I I live by that by by that shop. You see. So what happened? My friend says she uh, there was the one that that's called Sesh Bongan. You see. Uh, what happened is uh, he, he was standing there. While he was standing there, he, he was talking to someone, you see. While he was talking to someone, then the, the owner of the shop, the, 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 the owner of Wakawak, told him to that, uh, hey, get off here, get off here. He was chasing him away. He asked for what? Because he, how, we don't do anything. We are not doing anything to you, you see. Then what the, 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 the owner of the shop replied to him saying, hey, fall off, get out of here. I don't want you here. In broad strokes, the story Lebohang tells corresponds with the one we've been able to put together from several different sources. He's a friend of Bongani's, the so-called Nyaupe boy that most agree started the confrontation. And Lebohang doesn't put the blame on Bongani. But other than that, his version also details how the confrontation developed. It escalated to a part where even the, the councillor, our councillor was called Jabu, you see, he was called and was told there that uh, what was happening there. And and did Jabu come to the Waka Waka shop? Yes, he came. He, he came and stood there, wanted to know what was happening. So the councillor was surprised, not knowing that how how can this guy have a gun? Because this guy is a foreigner. He, he doesn't have anything. He, 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 he has his, his work license. Maybe. We don't even know if he has a permit or what, you see. And now he wants to shoot people here. That's what the councillor asked the, 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 the shop owner. And the, 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 he, he managed to call the, the cops because when the cops came, they investigated the place. We were surprised when two, two guns came out of that shop. Two guns, imagine. We, we thought even one was impossible to get, but two guns, you see. And we were surprised that if, if he, he has what, two cans, which means all of the, the other shops have many, many cans, you see. Then we told the, 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 the cops that these guys has cans. Then the cops did like, hey, ah, these guys don't have cans, it was just this one. Lebohang doesn't detail what role the local councillor, Chabutomo, played when people formed parties and started growing from shop to shop. But Jabu is the man Bongani said directed the groups with a whistle. Labahang explains how young men in the street came together. They first went to the police to demand that the shops were searched. But soon, they started going from shop to shop themselves. Ah, it's a street. It's a people from the street, maybe 30, 20, because all of, all of the young guys came and the, old, the, the, the parents came to say, hey, this is wrong, you see. So that's when the, the, the youth was active in saying, no, this is the end of the guns for, 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 for these guys now, you see. In hindsight, this was a recipe for disaster. You had an angry crowd going around looting while supposedly searching for guns and foreign shopkeepers who see the crowd and pull out guns to defend themselves that's angering the crowd even more. Yeah, Spiro is, is just the, is, 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 um, 
younger than us. He was not there as in like, hey, hey, you, you see, he was a bystander. He was watching all, all the things while, while it happened, you see. Soon, the group Labhang was in and Spio was following, arrived at the shop, right next to where Labhang and Rasmus are currently talking. They found the shop closed, the roller door down, and they began forcing it open. Labuchang was in front of the group. They said, ah, we are opening this battle now. We are opening this battle. And we are trying, we are using our hands, seeing that we don't come with uh, uh, weapons or anything, you see. Then uh, the Spiwe wanted to help, <laughs> seeing that he, want, he was already part of the, the, the group, you see. He wanted to help. He came under, when I was told, he came under here, you see, he came under here and he wanted to hold even the butter too. So when we said one, when we were about to take the butter up, then the bullet came out there. We didn't hear anything. We just saw a light. I just saw a light there, light by the garage door piercing. And hey, that, that day I was so scared. And was it... Was there no warning shot? No warning shot, nothing. I tell you that it was it, it was dark. It, it flashed, it's like, yeah. cried. You see, yeah. when they we dispersed. When we dispersed like this, I didn't even see, feel this at that moment because you see, it's hot blood when yeah. we are running away. After seeing what they, when we, when I look at the back, the boy was down, you see. Same time when I tried to get back, uh, my friend pointed my, 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 my arm saying, hey, look at your arm. When I look at my arm, hey, I was surprised what they, what's happening here. Again, Labuchang's story diverges from the story told in court that several warning shots were fired through the roof. This was what Yosef said, as well as the police. But it could not be proven, Ramutan said because the roof that the other bullets would have pierced had been removed. Lebhang's story also does not match what the local councillor, Jabulani Tomo, said. Do you remember the TV clip from SABC we played earlier, where he looked back at what happened? The resentment was not because of uh, xenophobic reasons. It was uh, maybe started by a criminal act. When Tomo speaks about the looters, it sounds like random criminals. But Lebuchang, Bongani, and other witnesses points to the fact that things were much more coordinated, in part by Jabulani Tomo himself. Detective Ramutan only came to the scene after the unrest. But what did the police do in the hours leading up to Spiwa's death? We know that they were aware that a conflict was brewing in Snake Park that they were in fact at the Waka Waka shop. So why didn't they stop the situation from escalating further? City Press reported on the 25th of January 2015, only a few days after Spewer's death, that some of the people who had taken part in the lootings said the police had encouraged them to do so. Others reported that the police had participated in the lootings themselves or demanded bribes from the shopkeepers to protect them, essentially to do their jobs. Both the local politicians and the police were not able to stop the conflict that killed a 14-year-old boy and set the country on fire, only later to blame Nyaupe boys and criminals for what had happened. 
Uh, that guy, uh, that boy took a bullet that was meant for me that day because uh, at the last second, he came in at the last second and that was, that was when this foreigner too uh, shot the, the, the bullet. And uh, I still today dream sometimes that uh, what would have happened. That's why sometimes I try to, I I don't want uh, the, the young guys to ish, to go through those things. Uh, you see, I, I in my life, I want to make a difference because uh, that boy maybe he saved me for a reason. Maybe God, only God knows that why he saved me for that day, you see. Because I would have died that day, seriously. So do you feel any kind of uh, guilt maybe even that, that, that you know, that... Today, you see, it's the first time I was say I'm talking to you this time. It's the first time that... Uh, I've uh, accepted to forgive myself because you know that life, you don't know where will we end, you see. But from that day, you know, it took about um, uh, one year, two years to even say those words that say that, that I said that day, that guy put, took a bullet for me because I even was scared to say that because hey, it happened, it happened, you see. And that's why I'm always saying that, hey, that boy, why did it come here? But sometimes, you see, when I'm helping life, I say, hey, Maybe that's why God wants me to be here. You have see, because He is the only one knows knows what what's our way, when will it end? Then I say that I maybe I was not meant to die by the gun. You see. Mm. Yeah. So you're saying you smoke now? What What do you mean by that? What do you smoke? I see. I I I was uh, I had a drug problem that those years because I I smoked a lot trying to forget. You see. Nyaope. Yeah, even smoke nyaupe, all of it, mm. drugs and under and nyaupe, all of it, because eh, trying to forget to teach, hey, what happened to this boy? Why did this boy do this matter? Why, 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 why was he there? Why didn't he go to home when it was dark? You see those questions. Same time I say, if I was in there, obviously I wouldn't be here saying these words, you see. According to Lebohang, Spiwa was not a ringleader. He was just a 14-year-old boy, someone who perhaps looked up to Lebohang and the other older boys in the street. In the court, the prosecution made no mention of any of this. The magistrate based his sentencing on what was presented. He understood that Yosef had feared for his life and suspended the sentence. We have no reason to believe this was untrue. Neither the role of the police nor the local councillor was mentioned. Legally, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that, but the picture presented was incomplete and based on very little evidence. Why the prosecutor decided not to charge Yosef with the attempted murder of Lebohang, we cannot tell you. We don't know if Ms. Ramtahal knew about the discrepancy with his statement either. We couldn't find out if she attempted to contact the family at any point. In fact, we can't tell you much about what the prosecutor was thinking. After a string of emails and phone calls over a period of three months, her boss, the Protea Court's chief prosecutor, Lynn Wessels, finally agreed to an interview. I really would not want to speculate. I really would not want to speculate. At the end of the day, the case has been finalized. 
in a lot of cases you will not get happiness on either side you might not get happiness on the side of the accused or you might not get happiness on the side of the family remember at the end of the day a life was taken away in this matter and whether or not the person was sentenced to a holy suspended sentence whether the person was sentenced to direct imprisonment that will never bring the person back that was killed so at the end of the day will always be unhappiness no matter which way you look at it I, I think so too and I think that the man who had the unlicensed firearm that was in his shop in Soweto who has no other protection and really has no other kind of choice but to arm himself because no one else is going to protect him I don't know how else he can survive no, I'm not going to spe- speculate on that In total in our 1 hour and 20 minute interview the chief prosecutor told us more than 20 times that she didn't want to speculate about the specifics of the case she didn't answer any follow up questions but she told us that the defense requested a plea deal and the director of public prosecutors turned that down in court what led to the killing was never proven one way or the other and afterwards nothing really changed in snake park There are plenty of rumors of palms that needed to be greased for the Somalis to be able to safely return and continue their business. But there's little evidence to back this up. In court, we learned that the Somali community paid 25,000 rands to the Mahori family to contribute to the funeral arrangements and as some kind of recognition of their loss. And when the money was handed over, Jabulani Tomo was there again. He, he he was here in that process of the funeral. Those days of funeral. He was here the Jabutomo. If I remember from a previous interview yes. where he also received money on behalf of the family. That money is the money that he came from the Pakistan. Yes. Did they give it to you? No. The family or him? He was the holding that you. man the the Jabutom for you. Yes. Then why? I don't know. In the court, you can read it in in the documents. The in the court they say the the Somalis they gave 25,000 rand. Did you know that? 25,000. It's not the 25,000. But you told me at some point that you got something like 15,000 rand or 17,000 rand. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. Not 25. Okay. Yes. We set out trying to figure out why Spiwa died. From a source inside the justice system, we were told that something was rotten in the case. That there was a conspiracy at play. and corruption got the shooter of a child off the hook we were also told that nobody would take responsibility for spiwa's death that he had been forgotten we now know that this is not true lebohang still remembers spiwa the image of the boy haunts him every day maybe you remember siabonga spiwa's friend and cycling comrade from the first episode He also takes responsibility. Maybe I could have saved him when I, I went there early and 
taken him to the race, maybe I could have saved him. So I, I sort of blame myself for it. And then, of course, the Mahori family. Spiwa's mother, Nombuiselo, still struggles to accept what happened. She finds relief for her broken heart in the church, which she attends often. One of her favorite Bible verses is from Deuteronomy. Here, God promises to uplift and restore those who remain faithful. In a simple sense, it might be true that if Lebuchan had not tried to open the roller door, or the Mahoris had kept their son at home, or Yosef had not fired his gun, that Spiwa might not have died that night. But none of them had much power over the circumstances where the chain reaction started. That responsibility is much bigger than them. Since that night, victims like Spiwe, foreigners and South Africans continue getting killed in a seemingly endless cycle of attacks, retribution and violence. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. To try to make sense of this, I spoke to Lauren Landau, the immigration researcher and scholar who I worked with on the book. What was a language of the street, of the gangster, of the insider and the outsider fighting it out in the neighborhood has now become part of national discourse and indeed global discourse, if you look elsewhere in the world, where the immigrant becomes the person who has robbed you of your future. South Africans have surrendered their own city to the foreign nationals. The nation should discuss that particular question. Everybody just arrives in our townships and rural areas and set up businesses without licenses and permits. We are going to bring this to an end. We have people coming into the country, trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. The killing of Spiwe was not an anomaly. It was a consequence of a broken system. And it isn't being fixed. I think looking forward, we're, we're looking at a period where South Africa is going through, as much of the world will go through an economic crisis. South Africa was already struggling to meet its obligations to, to many of its citizens. And there will be an effort to prioritize, to say, if we have to help people, who are we going to help? And I think for me, the question is, what does help mean? Are we handing out or are we building a future that people can live in safely and prosperously? I would hope for the latter. And I think immigrants and the region should be part of that solution. But I suspect that in the short term, for politicians who need to be reelected tomorrow, not in 10 or 15 or 20 years, we are going to see much more of a rhetoric of let's put South African citizens, let's put poor black South African citizens first. We went out looking for a conspiracy and we found one that was much bigger than we thought. We can, if we choose, blame this on the local gangsters, the local politicians and the well-off business owners whose workers risk their lives because the alternative is much worse. 
But the truth is that as long as we don't hold any of them to account, as long as we don't deal with the inequality and poverty in places like Snake Park, as long as we keep electing leaders that put the blame of their failures on immigrants and so-called criminals, we are all complicit. The good news is this, we can all be part of the solution too. You have been listening to One Night in Snake Park. Reporting and story edits for this podcast were done by Tanya Pampaloni, Rasmus Bits, and me, Elliot Moleva. Additional reporting by Neo Rahajani and Paul McNally. The podcast was edited and mixed by Rasmus Bits. Tanya Pampaloni was executive editor. Original score and recording assistance was by John Batman. More of his music at johnbutman.com. The editor at Sound Africa is J.D. Ramalab. Recording assistance by Andreas Hammer Holmefield. A huge thank you to Peter Dotland from Filt in Oslo. This podcast could not have been produced without the generous support of the Taco Caper Investigative Journalism Grant. Thank you for listening.